papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary analysis of what's going on in the news media, and we hope to provide some enlightenment as well as some entertainment during this next half hour. I'm Rex Smith, the former editor of the Times Union, here with my veteran journalistic colleagues, Judy Patrick, the former editor of the Daily Gazette, and Barbara Lombardo, formerly executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record of Troy, and Ian Pickus, the news director of WAMC and Northeast Public Radio. Here we are. You doing okay? Good to be back, and uh, I'm disappointed I was not hired to be the Taylor Swift reporter for Gannett, so here I am. Come on. (laughs) Who would would be good at that job? Any of you? Are you a Swifty? Uh, (laughs) You know what? Uh, I I could try to do anything. Yeah. I like that answer. Well, well, it's absolutely true. You know, back in the 40s, a guy named Turner Catledge was the managing editor of the New York Times, and he said you could take a great general assignment reporter and plot him down on the face of the moon and tell him to file a story by 5 p.m. and he would be able to do that. Now, that was, of course, before anybody thought we were going to actually land on the moon. But that is actually a true. You expect that of reporters, don't you? Cover whatever you happen to get. What we say is you only have to be an expert for the purpose of that 600 words. So get it and figure it out. Tell us what the story is and stay, you know, one week ahead of your readers. We have a letter from a, a listener, Sheila, who writes to say, first, that she enjoys the podcast. Thank you. You can download us anytime at wamc.org. She says, I understand that journalism jobs have been cut all over, but I'm hoping you can discuss the top three or five specific essential computer skills that journalism students close to finishing college should acquire. Now, some of you here in this room teach uh, college students, so you could say, in particular, uh, Sheila asks, how should they be approaching and learning about AI? I know that internships are critical, and I'm looking for more specific information. So what do you think, Professor Pickus? I'll dodge the AI question because (laughs) I think we're still figuring out how that works, although Here at WAMC, we belong to the Associated Press, and they have utilized AI search. So that's been interesting to test out a little bit. Like if I need a picture of an elected official who is in the archives from 2011, it'll use AI to power the search. That's not something for a college student to learn necessarily, but the advice I give for our students and our interns here at the station, number one, just make this stuff now. Don't wait until you're graduating. The barriers to entry are gone have your own podcast, know how to do that tech, learn the Adobe suite. And then my number three would be an old standby. Learn how to write and write well, because (laughs) it's all writing. Podcasting is writing. Social media is still writing. And if the writing is bad or your facts are wrong, it doesn't matter how prettily it's packaged. Yeah, I'd like to jump on that as a journalism teacher for advanced reporting and news writing. It is the writing, and it's not just the writing, but the reporting. And using things like AI can be a tool, but what I am trying to teach up-and-coming journalists is that you have to know how to do the research. You have to practice, and figuring out now, which is more challenging than ever, what 
sources are believable. Finding the real people, the human beings behind the stuff that you find online and how to assess whether things are credible, that you need to do your own firsthand research as much as possible. And then the next level would be being able to verify the veracity of the stuff that you're finding from other sources. And then being able to analyze it, decide what to use, what not to use, doing the background and the history so you can put the news into context, and then being able to tell a story that's interesting, compelling, factually accurate, has attribution. So those are all skills that, uh, in response to the reader's question, it's not a computer skill. It's a skill using your brain. Hey, That's can your I, own brain. Yeah. Can I jump in on this as well? Excel. I think if you know how to manipulate a spreadsheet or use a spreadsheet, it's one of the things that journalists um, historically have not been good at is numbers and manipulating data. I love to see that on a resume. I also agree with Ian about the Adobe Suite. I think being able to do something with images and graphics is an important skill. You know, I would also, speaking of what you like to see on a resume, I loved hiring people with backgrounds in science, people who were biology majors or geology majors or something like that, who had learned about the process of trying to disprove a theory, which is a lot of what reporting is a lot of the time, because the first answer that you get from a source is frequently not the right answer or not the whole answer. So, and I think it's interesting that you all came up with reporting answers to a question about technology, because fundamentally it is reporting. That's encouraging, isn't it, folks? If I could say just one more thing about this, you know, I think it all comes down to passion and drive also. It's not a job you can do halfway. It's not a job for dilettantes. You're either going to be like a dog with a bone or else you will not be successful in media. Yeah. And, yeah. and Judy's right about things like Excel spreadsheets and understanding how to read budgets, how to analyze the numbers that are presented, how to compare one year to another or five years to another or what. But then going beyond what the numbers tell you, which isn't what Excel will do, but finding out what story is behind the numbers, what do they tell. All right. Let me turn to what has been a significant story in the community where we originate, right here in New York's capital region, and that is uh, the disappearance of a nine-year-old girl while she was biking on a road at Moreau Lake State Park in Saratoga County, which was covered extensively by all the media in this community. And I have to say, as a reader uh, no longer engaged in news gathering, I was captivated by the story, and I think it's important for us to mention to listeners who say, well, yes, it was a, an important story, but there were other things going on. You know, the House of Representatives was uh, axing their speaker, and there's a continuing uh, war, of course, in Ukraine. But stories are not less valuable just because they are sensational. There's a tremendous, there's an incredible homicide trial going on in the capital region just now, too, that is sensational. And while we don't want to sensationalize stories, we shouldn't turn away from stories that are, in fact, just intrinsically sensational. But here is an interesting issue. My, my successor as editor of the Times Union, Casey Seiler, has decided that the continuing coverage in the newspaper will no longer use the kidnapped victim's name or photo, that she will now be listed as a nine-year-old who was kidnapped. What do we think of that? I would like to think that I would do the same thing. I know that I would. It seems like the absolutely right thing to do. We're so thrilled that this was a story with a happy ending. This made national and international news reports. And the news is that a girl was abducted. And it's not just sensational. It's keen human interest. Any living, breathing person is concerned about a child who is... But what about the fact that all stories all exist in the archives? Well, you know? that that's a problem. So when I went online and read 
Casey's column about why they weren't going to use the name. With that is a link to other stories that have been in the past. I don't know if that's been updated as of this recording, but you could click on it and you see the girl's name in the headlines. Mm -hmm. You see the girl's name in the story. So I'm not sure how they plan to address that. You'd almost have to go back and change the archives and make her name disappear. Would you do and that? Then, well, you know, that's... Uh, the answer to that question is I'm no, I think, right? Because <laughs> you don't want to make the name disappear. Like, where do you? Of course, we would not use that name going forward. And my old paper, the Daily Gazette and Schenectady, is following suit. They are not naming her name or showing her picture anymore. And the reason for that is this is a, a young person who has a whole life to live. And she doesn't want this to be her life. And you don't want to victimize her further. It goes into the whole issue about what victims we should name in any kind of story. Do we name victims of stabbing? Do we name victims of murder? I've dealt with police agencies who would not give me the name of a victim for that very reason. I think the newspaper still has the right to that name, and it's our decision whether or not to publish it. But um, this whole notion of when do you include the name of a victim in a story, It's in, in many cases it would be of value. It would be of public interest if, for example, the mayor was assaulted or the or governor. the mayor's child. or Right. Uh, but in this case, they needed to get her image out, and they wanted to get her, her name out there because they wanted people looking for her, and that makes complete sense. It also makes it a more human story when you have a name for it. Mm. Ian, what do you think? Well, it's a unicorn case. I think that's what makes it maybe an odd avatar of the practice, which is definitely justifiable. It's the instinct that all of us would have to quit putting the attention on the victim of a crime. But in this case, it was an international story with a lot of drama, a last-minute rescue, and I think you're not going to be able to get that genie back in the bottle. You'll Google her name 20 years from now, and this case will pop up most likely. But I certainly think the decision is justifiable. It's really interesting, though, the ongoing nature of journalism these days, that it does always follow a person around. That didn't used to be the case when what we had was a print product that you would have to go look up the paper in the library or in the uh, uh, microfilm. Radio, people don't listen to radio archives before the days of the Internet. You know, people wouldn't come into the studio and say, hey, I want to hear that story uh, that you aired 15 years ago. But these days, you're confronted as a news leader often with people asking you to take down stories uh, or to withdraw them from the internet, which there are two answers. We've mentioned this before in this program. I, I think the answer to would you go in and change the stories that you've published to remove the photograph and remove the name of the victim is no, you would not because that's a, the archives are a true record of what you published. You could delist it, right? De-index it, uh, we'd sometimes say, is, uh, that's, is to stop the web crawlers, put basically a wall so that somebody accessing that particular name won't run into this story. But to actually change the historical record is, I think, a no-no for journalists. I have two thoughts. One is, as a journalist, I would want to revisit how is she doing, how is her family doing in 10 years or 15 years, and I would need to know who she was and how to find her if I was doing that, and then decide how you want to portray her. So you'd, there is a tendency to want to follow on somebody, and how did you cope with this, and how was your life? Another issue with the names of the victims, I would have discussions frequently with the director of Wellspring in Saratoga County, which handles domestic violence prevention and services. 
And when we would, the little police blurb in the Saratogian that would say, you know, so-and-so naming a defendant has been arrested for some sort of sexual assault, we wouldn't name the victim, but it might say the victim was known to the person and, you know, a child, whatever. And the problem was, multiple problems, one of the problems was that people could figure out, oh, this must be so-and-so's kid. So without actually naming the victim on a in a small community, you are identifying the victim, and kids would get harassed in school. It was a tough situation. I remember as a young reporter covering the courts in Long Island when we had one of the first cases in which a husband was standing trial for raping his wife. And the policy of the newspaper was not to name rape victims. But if you name the defendant, you're identifying the rape victim in this instance. So to follow through on that policy, you would have to say a certain defendant was on trial for raping a certain person. And we ended up not following the policy. We ended up, we didn't name the woman, but we said it was wife. And so people could infer from that who she was. So you get into these awkward things where sometimes your policies really can't be followed. It's a guideline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in this case, this little girl is from a small town. Everyone in the small town knows this now and will know it for a long time. But it's the principle here, and it's it's going outside that small town, especially this story went around the world. Let's try to do what we can to minimize the harm going forward. Minimize harm being one of the key tenets of the code of ethics of the side of professional journalists. Before we leave this, let me bring a challenging one to the group that we've dealt with here at the station. We cover a local government. A counselor on that local government was accused of sexual misconduct by multiple people in the community who then came to a council meeting to air their grievances and call on the council to take action against this person. Fast forward a little while, none of the allegations were ever proven. This person apologized if I made anybody feel uncomfortable, but you know, defended himself and eventually got a different job in city government and has since asked us many, many times to take down our coverage of the meeting where the grievances were aired in the first place. And we have held the line on that and said no, because It wasn't a whisper campaign. It was people at a public comment period on the government this person served as a member of. So we just felt we couldn't whitewash that. But it is a slippery slope, as Rex says. Can you do in your audio archives the same thing we can do in print and create some sort of an introduction to that piece that just says, you know, in some, the type of what you said has happened since this And I think where we've left it is we would love to do an updated story where we explore what happened with you. And that invitation has not been taken up. Exactly. Yeah, but to leave that hanging out there so anybody can listen to it, they don't know what happened afterwards. Well, you reported what happened, right? Yeah, It did, but it's not linked to that Mm -hmm. initial report. Yeah, so somebody to, can mis- somebody can misuse this. that initial report and publicize it all over again without relaying truthfully what had happened as as a result that it was unfounded or nobody pressed charges or he apologized and everything's hunky dory now or whatever it is. I think that's a problem that we need to be more but, diligent about addressing in the media. But of course, with digital technology now, they can fabricate uh, reports that sound like this. Uh, you know, you can they could be making. Well, yeah, um, but we, so we need to do what we can yeah, to make things do right. What we can. I think that's true. It is, though, 
certainly almost a daily occurrence now for someone running a news organization to get people contacting you saying, you know, changed. I think I've told the story before of a high school principal from Long Island or maybe middle school who contacted me because as a young man, he had been a deadhead and in Albany was caught up in a sweep of ooh, people smoking marijuana on the streets outside of what was then called the Pepsi Arena. And his name was in our clips, and apparently it was being passed around by his students on Long Island that he had been arrested for smoking dope on the streets of Albany. Please take uh, my name out of the story. And I'm sorry, can't do that. Uh, no, I, I don't see why you would take that out. Right. It's a real thing. It happened. But you don't want to be cocky and arrogant about, you know, just because something happened doesn't mean we were right to publish it in the first place or that it has to exist in our archives forever. But in a case like that, it happened, and he should be able to explain that to the students. Right. So we always talk on this show a little bit about the challenges to journalism in the era of Donald Trump. And it's not because we're a bunch of screaming liberals. It's because our goal is truth-telling. And the fact of the matter is we have difficulties that we continually confront by the leading candidate for president on the Republican ticket who is not truthful in such a number of ways. And this has been confirmed over and over, most recently in uh, an interview with John Kelly, the longest-serving White House chief of staff under Donald Trump. And it's been most recently mentioned in the new book um, by uh, Marty Baron, who was the editor of the Washington Post during Trump, previously editor of the Boston Globe, the Miami Herald, uh, and had been a top editor of the New York Times before that. So this is an experienced veteran journalist now living in the Berkshires whose book talks about Donald Trump's behavior. And I just want to read a quotation here and just see what you all think of this. The question was asked of Marty Barrett in an interview whether the newspapers are being clear-eyed enough with the audiences about the reality of the Republican Party in 2023. He says, some stories are admirably accurate, clear, and forthright. Others are not. The important thing is that the stories make absolutely clear what's true and what's false, giving those proper weight and that we show the public the evidence. And with regard to Trump, he says the problem is that someone like General Mark Milley should be executed. He's called for prosecuting NBC for treason, use language that excuses violence. The challenge, though, is writing about this, airing stories, producing stories about this that don't present us as being one-sided. Thoughts on how we go about this? Being one-sided is not the problem. It's being unfactual in our reporting. Hmm. Unfactual, meaning? Not telling the whole story. And pointing out when something is untrue is part of our responsibility. You know, in his book, he, uh, there's a chapter that talks about the release of the Clinton emails. And if you remember, that happened in the summer before the 2016 election. And he looks back on it, and he finds fault with how they handled it. And in retrospect, he said they should have focused more on where the breach came from and why the breach happened. And maybe give that equal weight or even more weight. And going forward, his direction to his newsroom was, when you get this release of information gained surreptitiously, the reporter's also need to take a good hard look at that and if that's an issue you need to report it especially when regard to how they covered the clinton emails certainly there was information there about how the democratic committee was handling the campaign and john podesta's emails etc cetera, etc cetera. there was some news value there but the maybe they missed the larger story and at least initially because they should have focused more on the fact that the russian government was likely involved they didn't know for sure at that point but they they should have looked more into that 
and this whole book takes a good hard look at what they did in, at the Washington Post in those years, and he's, he has regrets. You're noting also that there is a part in the book where he reveals a secret dinner with Donald Trump that he and the publisher of the Washington Post went to just before uh, it, Trump took no, office? No, it was while he was in office. It was at the White House, and it was Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post, went as well. No one knew about this dinner meeting, not even his newsroom until the publication of this book. Marty Barron said he was uncomfortable with the meeting, but they did it anyway, and they went with the assurance that there would be no favors, no promises delivered. There was no tit-for-tat with this. And wouldn't you know it, the day after the meeting, Donald Trump and Jared Kushner are calling and saying, well, are you going to be nicer to us now? <laughs> and, and obviously, that was not Marty Barron's intention. I think the owners and the publisher were trying to establish a relationship with being the Washington Post. This is their town. This is the new president, the leader of the free world. They want to establish some connection like publishers and owners typically do. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that it was a secret, I'm unhappy about that. The fact that it was an off-the-record meeting, unhappy about that. And also on a little bit unhappy the fact that it was an off-the-record meeting, but now Marty Barron is including the details in his book. I'm glad he's finally including it. I'm disappointed <laughs> that, this, that that dinner happened and that it was never reported. Hmm. I, I think it's understandable if you are in those positions and you get a call from the president um, inviting you to dinner. You, you probably have to go, I would think. Let me tell you something that stuck out to me from the Marty Baron book tour. And this is someone I have so much respect for, really. But he, when they were trying to figure out the new motto for the Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness, dun, uh, dun, dun. <laughs> said, look, we're, we're not at war with the administration. It's our job to cover them. And, you know, frankly, the administration was at war with you. Whether you want to take that bait or not, this was, I think, the key difference in the Trump years. They were on offense against the press from day one, and they weren't playing by the same rules as the press traditionally was playing by. And it's, and by nature, an oppositional relationship. We're going to find out what you're doing, and we're going to fact check you. And that's the case for any White House and any Washington Post regime. But I thought it was a little naive to say we're not at war with the administration. The administration declared war. You're it's, in it. It's good PR. We're not at war. We're at work. I think yeah, that's, that sounds good. But I think you're right. It's an inadequate way of describing what they really needed to do. Yes, I, I have Marty Barron, even after this, on a huge pedestal for his journalistic work. <laughs> yes. He's, he's a amazing. Legend. He's a legend. Yeah. That's yeah. a great way to describe it. And remember that this happened in 2017, so it's uh, the, that dinner meeting. So it was odd to hear. I haven't read the book yet, just the, read the stories about the book and interviews with Marty Barron that he's saying, oh, we realize that they consider us foes. And it's like, where you been? Like, when, <laughs> when did Trump first call the press the enemy of the American people? I want to go back to something that I believe I heard from uh, you former editors, that uh, you were upset that he had an off-the-record meeting uh, with the president. Uh, do you think there's not uh, an opportunity for editors to do off-the-record conversations, to have, in effect, secret conversations sometimes with people who are big in the news? Yeah, yeah I don't like is, it. Before, huh. before the State of the Union every year, there's this tradition where the big anchors always go and have a luncheon meeting with the president and get the you know download on what's going to happen. I hate that. 
I, mm. you, because what these off-the-record meetings are trying to do is skew the coverage one way or the other. They're, they're trying to get some influence over how things happen. Telling me something when I was an editor and that me being able to tell my reporters or my, my readers does me no good. So it depends on the content of the conversation. So there is value, and I think Ian was alluding to this, there's value in the leaders of organizations sitting down and talking to each other and getting to know each other as human beings and that there's going to be times when they are going, by the very nature of their jobs, be adversarial. But they also have some common interests. They might have the good of the community involved or they, whatever. So just to get to know each other a bit as people, that can increase trust perhaps. But the conversation that ensues, if you don't want to be locked into to well, something yes. that you're told in a meeting that's deemed off the record from the start. And I think there are times when, when someone will say, let me tell you off the record. And, and I've been in a situation where I've had to say, no, 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 stop. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can't yeah, talk yeah. to me. I will not take this off the record. On the other hand, a great example is at the beginnings of the pre-sex abuse scandals, as we were beginning to learn the depth of the problem, I worked for a publisher who believed we should try to get along with people we were covering and set up a luncheon, a nice secret luncheon for me with Bishop Howard Hubbard. The bishop, the publisher, and the editor went to lunch. Write your own joke. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Who orders the wine and uh, what is it? But it's not a situation that was going to lead to any change in our coverage, I have to say. We were being denounced from the pulpit every Sunday because, you know, our best enterprise stories we would tend to put into the Sunday paper. And uh, so so on Sunday mornings, you have these stories about Catholic priests, and uh, that sort of shocks those who go into the pulpit. But I don't think it was wrong. Of course, I'm saying this now 15 years later. I don't think it was wrong to go into the meeting to hear the bishop's agony, which he was presenting at the time, yet we did not get until many years later a full accounting of what was actually going on, of how priests have been transferred to cover up basically their behavior. But it's just an interesting thing. I think you sometimes take these secret meetings and have these quiet conversations in the interest of, as you say, getting to know the individuals, understanding, having empathy, but it doesn't affect your journalistic judgment. You still have to be able to stab them in the heart if you need to. Yeah, metaphorically. And in Marty Barron's defense, he didn't really want to go to this meeting. It's very clear from his writing. And let's hope he's articulate and has strong positions. He's got a lot of experience. I hope he continues to advocate in, in favor of not both sides journalism, but to ask critical questions, to raise these critical issues going forward. I hope it's more than a book tour is what I'm saying. Great. All right. With that, we are out of time here. A really fascinating half-hour conversation. Ian Pickett of WAMC, Barbara Lombardo, and Judy Patrick and Rex Smith here, longtime editors. And we're thankful to our producer, David Gustina, for bringing us together, and to you folks for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. actors upon a living stage now. Newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling-ling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build, meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the bill. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, and WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. 
You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>